Well, it's great to be here with you all this morning as we are continuing in the book of John. We are in John chapter 6, starting really in verse 22. We are going to be starting in verse 14. But today we are going to meditate on one of the most famous sayings in the Bible of Christ, and the first I am statement of Jesus in the book of John. That is, Jesus is the bread of life. Another shout out to Helena and Rob for connecting us with the coffee. That was my first sip. Primo. Yes, exactly. See, we, we kind of conspired, and I was praying to the Lord. I was like, how do we get our people to worship more? And God spoke to me. He said, coffee. So that's what we decided to do. I'm kidding. Um, so today we, again, are in John chapter 6, looking at Jesus as the bread of life. I don't know if you guys have ever had really good bread before. And I'm, you know, not Hannaford bread or any bread that you could buy in the store, but homemade bread, right? You can't beat it. Homemade bread. I, whenever I was in college, I had a professor. He was my music history professor. His name was Dr. Gertzen. And every, once a semester, he would show up with bread that he made. He was some German guy and had this secret German bread recipe. And it was awesome. It was like the best bread ever. It was really, I don't know how, because he, you know, was probably there earlier in the day and the class was later in the day. It was warm. It was buttery, right? It was um, very filling. I remember one time I was actually fasting at the time. It was stuff going on. And I, um, I was going to quit that day, but I got to class and he came in with that bread. I was like, all right, I'm definitely done fasting for the day. <laughs> I'm going to eat this bread. Some bread is really, really good, right? And, and you know, it's, it's in, in this world, it, some is a lot better than others. Today, we're going to look at a different type of bread that is, as much as Dr. Gurdon's bread was satisfying, the bread of Jesus, we're going to see, is eternally satisfying. In fact, in a symbolic way, there's a lot of breads in this world, a lot of things that the world gives us to live off of, that the world offers to sustain us, that the world offers to give us life. Today, as Jesus interacts with a group of people here in the town of Capernaum, the same crowd that he fed with the fishes and the loaves, they're looking for bread. And Jesus is turning their eyes from physical bread to spiritual bread, the type of bread that only he can provide. What we're going to see today in the story here of the bread of life is that as opposed to the superficial provisions that this world offers to us, we, the church, by faith, are eternally nourished from a different type of bread. And that's the bread of Jesus Christ. And so let's read in our section here, John 6, we're going to start in verse 14 and 15. Then we're going to move ahead to verse 22. We're going to go from verse 22 to 35. There we go. This is what it says, starting in verse 14. When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, this is the miracle of the fishes and the loaves, 
They said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to, take, to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Moving forward to verse 22. Perfect. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got in the boat and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So Jesus isn't here. We're on the east side of the lake. We're going to go across the lake to the west side of the lake. We're going to go to Capernaum. We're looking for Christ. 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you may believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So last week, to remind ourselves and get a, a handle of the context here, we saw Jesus walking on the water to his disciples. They were in the middle of the Sea of Galilee trying to get to the town of Capernaum on the other side. After this experience, the crowd that saw the miracle of Jesus, again, this was in the middle of the night, so the crowd, unbeknownst to them, this happened in the middle of the night, this miracle to walk on the water, they wake up, they just experienced this miracle of Christ that happened the other day, and now they're looking around, and they can't find Jesus anywhere. This guy that just did this amazing miracle is nowhere to be found. And so they're heading to Capernaum to find this man. Now, the stakes were pretty high for these people, okay? They saw this miracle from Jesus, but it was more, he, to them, was more than just a miracle worker. And that's why I read verses 14 and 15. In verse 14, whenever they saw what Jesus did, they said this, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. There was a prophecy by Moses. We all know Moses. You know, a long, long time ago, he had a prophecy that God would send a prophet would send someone like himself, but greater than himself, to lead the people. So they see Jesus, and they say, this is the man who is fulfilling the prophecy of Moses. This is the capital P, prophet, that God has sent. We've been waiting for this guy. And not only was he, did they think he was the fulfillment of Moses' prophecy, but they wanted to make him king. So it says in verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So there is a lot riding on Jesus. They see in Jesus not only 
a prophet sent from God, but their king to rescue them from the, their oppressors, from their Roman oppressors. So the fact that they can't find Jesus, that's a big deal, right? This is the guy who we're kind of putting all of our hope in. This is the guy that's going to lead us to victory. Now we can't find him. Where is Jesus? And so they're looking all around. Remember, this is a big group of people. This is like 5,000 men, probably 20,000 people gathered trying to find Jesus, trying to find their king. So they head to Capernaum, and they find Jesus in a synagogue. That's what we read in verse 59 of this chapter. So all this is taking place in a synagogue. Jesus is speaking in a synagogue. And this sets the stage for what is known as the bread of life discourse. This is a very long sermon. It's sort of like a give and take. Jesus is speaking. They respond. Um, we're going to be in here, actually, for three Sundays, the next three Sundays. But this sets the stage for what is known as the bread of life discourse. And the first thing that we're going to see as we think about this idea and flesh out this idea of Jesus as the bread of life is that the bread of life, as opposed to bread in this world, the bread of life never goes stale. The bread of life never goes stale. Let's read this again in verse 25. So the, the, the group has come and found Jesus in Capernaum. They they confront Jesus, and this is what happens. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to Jesus, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answers, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. So right away, these, these followers of Jesus here, they sort of confront him. They say, Jesus, what the heck, right? We were hanging out. You were feeding us. It was awesome. Then you just kind of disappear on us. What's going on? And I love Jesus' response to their question. It's a very type of political response. He responds without answering their question at all, right? He responds, and he says, I Truly, truly, I say to, you, say to you, you are seeking me, but not because you saw the signs. Jesus, is, Jesus answers their question in a way that he points instead to their motives behind the question. He doesn't really answer the question. He just responds to their motives. And he says, you are seeking me because you got something from me that you want. You are looking for me because you want something from me. You're not looking for me because you believe in me, but because you're hungry, because you want bread. Verse 26, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Every work that Jesus does in the gospel is to point to something bigger than the work itself. Okay? It's a sign. And that word sign is important. What do signs do? They tell you. They point to something. They tell you where you're going. They tell you where you're looking at, right? You can think of road signs. I'm trying to, whenever I was, you know, would travel for school and come back into Maine, there was a sign for Augusta. It said 100 miles. My heart always sunk because I knew I still had 100 miles to go, and I was already driving forever. But it was a pointer. The sign was a pointer to Augusta where I was trying to get. All of the signs of Jesus are pointers to him as the Savior of the world, as the Redeemer, as the Healer, as God's salvation. 
And he's saying to them, you're coming to me not because you saw the sign, but because you want something from me. You want to really use me. He exposes the condition of their hearts, their ulterior motives, that these are a spiritually selfish people. You don't want me. You want something to eat. You want bread. Now this is, it might seem a little harsh, because if you think about it, any observer would see these people traveling across the land to find Jesus. That sounds like a good thing, right? Wouldn't if, so, if a whole group of people, a whole crowd of people are traveling across the land to find Jesus, we might think, man, those guys are really dedicated, right? They're going across the water. They're walking all over the world to get to this man. And yet, whenever Jesus comes, whenever they come to Jesus, he exposes their hearts. Yeah, you, you're following me, but not for the right reasons. And so as we consider Jesus sort of diagnosing their spirit at this point, what we see, to continue this metaphor of bread, is that there is a worldly bread, there are worldly things that we want, and then there is a heavenly bread. There is worldly food, and there is heavenly food, okay? One goes stale, the other never goes stale. One perishes, the other never perishes. One exists only in this life, the other stretches for eternity. One comes from Jesus, the other does not. These people do not come to Jesus to repent of their sins and trust in him as their salvation. They came to Jesus because they wanted what they thought Jesus could get him, could get them. And the point that we get is that we don't need to come to Jesus looking for the world's bread. We don't need to come to Christ asking for the world's bread. Because that's not the bread that Christ offers us. That's not the bread, the food that stretches into into eternity. We can use God and use Christ to obtain things that we think we need in this world. But Jesus did not come to satisfy our needs in this world ultimately. But he came to satisfy eternal needs. Okay? Now... Whenever I say that, I don't mean that God doesn't bless us in this world. He does. He blesses us with tons of things in this world. But he is not a tool for worldly blessing. There is an ultimate salvation that Christ offers to us. That's why he came, to seek and to save the lost. Let me, let me explain this with a story, okay? So I was, worked at a church in Augusta, and... We had a, a young adult Bible study, and this guy started coming along, um, and then he brought his boyfriend, okay? And the first guy kind of disappeared, but the, the boyfriend of the guy, he stuck around. His name was Jeremy. And Jeremy was a young, uh, young guy. He was about my age, a little bit older than me. And he was instantly sort of connected with the group, and it was awesome to have Jeremy, Jeremy as, as a part of our, our Bible study. And he was sort of waking up. He'd never really gone to church before. He uh, had never, you know, read the Bible before, had these types of conversations before. He called it a spiritual journey. And it was. It was a spiritual journey. And so, you know, we're, Jeremy's part of our our group, and we're sharing the gospel with him and, and, you know, welcoming him in, and he's getting community with us. And, you know, as we're spending this time with Jeremy, sharing the gospel, 
and saying, you know, this is, this is what it means to follow Christ. You have to repent of your sin and place your faith in Him. Like, this is it, right? This is salvation. And, you know, and for Jeremy, one of those sins was homosexuality, right? That wasn't the only thing. That's not the end-all, be-all, but that's what he struggled with. That's where he was. And so, you know, we had that conversation. We're through Scripture. And he, um, he eventually, you know, confessed faith in Jesus, turned from his sin, and then was baptized. And it was great. You know, we had the—he was there. It was part of the service. It was, it was a powerful moment. But with Jeremy, in my spirit— I honestly wasn't sure if Jeremy was all there. I honestly wasn't sure if Jeremy really grasped Jesus as the bread of life. And what I mean by that is, I wasn't, I, I thought that Jeremy, with Jesus, he wasn't so much getting salvation, he wasn't so much getting reconciliation with God, but that because, whenever he was coming to our church, he was really just feeling better about himself. And, you know, he was lonely, and now he has a friend group, and um, he feels connected in a way he'd never felt connected before. And that's all awesome, good stuff, right? I, God, God, you know, connects us to his body, and God, the, the body of Christ, you know, it does make us feel better in some respects. But if that's it, if Jeremy just used Jesus to feel better about himself— that's not the gospel. That's not the good news. God, Jesus didn't come just to make us feel better about ourselves. In fact, and this is very nuanced, okay? If you read the Bible, you, you really should come out feeling worse about yourself <laughs> in, in, a, in a very real way. I mean, if you read Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3, if you read the prophets, I mean, they say, all our righteous deeds are nothing are filthy rags before God. Like the diagnosis of the human condition before God is, is bleak. You're not going to find a worse take on humanity than what you find in the Bible. The gospel tells us that we are far worse off than we realize. Yet God loves us far much, so much more than we could ever hope or dream. For Jeremy, I think he was using Jesus to have a friend group. And once that friend group went stale, he was out of there. And Jeremy is not a part of the church anymore. He's not around anymore. He was coming to Jesus, I think, looking for the world's bread. What Jesus is saying is that Jesus, as the bread of life, he is the prize. Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the reward. Jesus is the gift. Jesus is the bread. And there's a lot of blessing that flows out of Jesus, but even if we don't have those blessings in this world, if we have Christ, we have enough. He, a relationship with him, is enough for our souls. But we can get those twisted. And the moment the bread of this world that we're getting through Christ goes stale, at that moment, we can split. But if we truly love and truly follow and have truly committed ourselves with Jesus, he never goes stale. He eternally satisfies. He is, what he says here, the bread of life. Bread and food that endures to eternal life. 
And so Jesus confronts them. Don't use me to get what you want. And so the crowd, hearing this, hearing this, asks about, Jesus says here that, we, that they need to work for food that endures to eternal life. The crowd hears this, and they ask about what this means. This is what Jesus says. I'll just read this real quick. Verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of, which the Son of Man will give you. And so they respond, what must, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So Jesus says, don't work for this bread, but do this work for heavenly bread. And they say, okay, what do we need to do then? And this leads to our second point. The bread of life that never grows stale is also absolutely free. The work that God has called us to do ultimately is to believe, to have faith. And by that work, everything that we get from Jesus is absolutely free. Not that long ago, Hannah bought some bread from Hannaford. I think it was like uh, country crock, or I don't know what, what, the, what the business was. But she brought back the loaf of bread, and we opened the loaf of bread, and the bread was halfway cooked. One half of the loaf was cooked, the other half of the loaf was raw dough, okay? Very weird. So the first time in my life, I actually called the number on the packaging, right, with questions or, you know, issues or whatever. And so they actually sent someone to our house with a bread basket, and we got a lot of free bread to make up for their mistake, and then some donuts and stuff like that. So we got free bread, just like Jesus is saying here, just like they're giving free bread. But we understand that a company can't give away bread all the time for free, or else they wouldn't make any money. Typically, you have to work for it. You have to put money on the table for it because nothing in life is free. And so in the same way as Jesus is talking about this bread that endures for eternal life, the people ask, well, what do we need to do? What work do we need to do to get this bread? And this is where Jesus responds. The only work that you need to do is to believe. This is what it says in verse 28. What must we, they asked, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That you believe in him whom he has sent. As I think about the Christian faith, it really is the most simple teaching, the most simple religion view, worldview out there. Everything that God offers to us is received by faith. All the riches of heaven, all the good blessings of God, all the promises of God, we receive them by faith, by belief, by trusting God's word. In any other religion, you have to do this thing, that thing, all these things in order to be right with God. In the Christian faith, you don't do any of that. You take God at his word. You believe. Throughout the Gospels, we see this as the case. Mark chapter 2, verse 5. Mark chapter 2, verse 5. Whenever Jesus heals the, par the paralytic man who's dropped through his, his 
roof. This is what Jesus says to the man. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. The next healing, the woman who's reaching out to grasp the garment of Jesus, Luke chapter 8, verse 48. What does Jesus say to her? He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And then we see Romans 5, verse 1. Paul says to us, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, in which we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. How simple the teaching of Christ, that God opens up a door of salvation to us. Blessing, life, righteousness, and all we have to do is believe, is walk through the door. And yet, whenever I say this, how incredibly hard that is, right? How hard it is to just believe God. I mean, think about, I always go back to this, think about the Israelites on the Red Sea. Moses said, stop, stand firm, watch the Lord work for you. And they're like, Moses, like, what the heck are you talking about? How the heck are we going to get out of this situation? The, the water's right in front of us, right? The water's right in front of us. How are we going to do this? But Moses said, no, watch the Lord work for you. It's a really hard thing for us to take God at his word. It's hard. I'm sure you have experienced that. As we look to the Gospels, this is the issue of the disciples. What does Jesus say to his disciples over and over again? He says, ye of little faith, right? That was like his number one rebuke. You're not believing me. You're not taking me at my word. Ye of little faith. Matthew 17, 17. There's a little boy possessed by a demon. Jesus gave his disciples the power to cast out demons. They couldn't do it. What does Jesus say? He says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? That's pretty bad, right? Jesus is annoyed by their faithlessness. Jesus is burdened by their faithlessness. Now, I think about me trying to cast out a demon. <laughs> I don't think I could do that. Am I just being a little faith? If Jesus gave them his word that they could do these things, and yet this seems like a tall order, but he said, look, no, just believe me, you can do this. And whenever they fail to do it, he says, how long am I to be with people that just don't take me at my word? The tragedy of our sin is that we have become so darkened in our understanding, in our hearts, that we can no longer take God at his word. And that these things that are so simple are so hard. This work, all this work that God has done for us to reconcile us to himself, that I had a debt of sin against me that was so much more than I could, all the money in the world, Take Bill Gates' money, Jeff Bezos' money, everybody's money. Not enough to pay that debt. God has paid it in full. The only thing I have to do is take his word. And yet we look at these promises of God with skepticism, indifference, and contempt. These people here are saying, all right, Jesus, we want this bread. What do we got to do? Jesus says, the only thing you need to do is believe. It's the greatest deal in the history of the world. If you bet on Christ, you'll always come ahead. The question is, 
Will you believe or not? Will you trust him or not? Will you take that step of faith or not? And so Jesus brings this to them. You want the bread. Believe in me and you'll have it. And let's see their response. Let's see if they pass the faith test or not. This is what it says in verse 30. So they said to him, Okay, you say this. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What works you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Do they believe? No. They said, all right, you're telling us this. We need you to prove it. <laughs> we need you to back up this claim. Mind you, they just saw him with the fishes and the loaves. I mean, that's pretty miraculous, right? But then they say, well, what works do you do that we can take your word for it? How are you going to prove this? How are you going to authenticate yourself to us? And then they make mention of manna from heaven with Moses. Our fathers gave us manna from heaven in the wilderness. In the history of the Jews, I'm sure you know this story. Whenever they were out of Egypt trying to get to the promised land, they're wandering on the wilderness for 40 years as judgment against them. But during that time, God sent down manna from heaven, a bread-like flaky substance from heaven. And it's on this bread that they lived off. Uh, for 40 years. That's how God provided for them. This is what it says in Exodus 16. This is just the, the reference here. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So the Jews at the time of Jesus here are saying, Look, you're saying you're this Messiah, you're this Savior of the world. Where's the manna? In the past, God sent manna to prove, you know, who he was and to prove who Moses is. There was a belief at this time that whenever the Messiah came, manna would also come. That the Lord would rain down manna again. And so they're saying, look, Jesus, we might believe you, but we need to see proof. We need to see the manna. Where is the manna? Where's the food that you gave, that God gave our fathers in the past? And this brings us to our third and final point. The bread of life, like manna, but so much more than this manna, eternally satisfies. Verse 32. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us bread, this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In Jesus' response to these people's demand for manna, he takes this understanding of manna and applies it to himself. And this is very similar to the woman at the well, if you remember that from John chapter 4. They see this manna as sustenance, as food for their bodies, as provision so that they can live. And Jesus says that he has a manna, he has a bread that's even better than the manna in the wilderness. 
that Moses' man is nothing compared to the manna that Christ has. And the people want this, just like the woman of the well. They say, all right, Lord, give it to us. And that's where Jesus says, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Not only is Jesus the giver of the bread, but he is the bread himself. The point is this. As much as these people need physical bread to sustain them, need physical bread for their bodies, like their forefathers and the men in, in the wilderness, even more they need to be nourished spiritually. Even more they have a soul hunger, a soul thirst, a soul satisfaction that needs to be filled. And Jesus is saying, I am the only one that can satisfy you. I am the only one that can fill that hunger, fill that thirst. You want manna. I am that manna. The question then, as I think about it, whenever we say Jesus eternally satisfies, what do we mean by that? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Jesus satisfies. What does that mean? What does Jesus satisfy? I think the answer is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. This is a, a really great verse. This is what Solomon says. It says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. At the core of who we are, Solomon is saying, is that we have within us a, a conundrum, a paradox. It says God has put eternity into man's heart. What does that mean? I think what Solomon's saying is that as humans, we have an awareness of something more outside of us. And it's a bit of a paradox because we're finite people. We're going to die. We're going to disappear. But we have a perception of infinite, of the infinite. We are temporary, yet we have a conception of the eternal. And what Solomon is saying is that's from God. God has put that conception that there's something more out there than just us. And I think that bears out. I mean, there's some folks who are atheists and say this is all we have in this world. But most people think there's something greater than just us out there. There's something bigger than just out there. And that's from God. But we have this sense in such in a frustrating way. He says, again, God has put eternity in man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. So we have a concept of something more, but an inability to understand it in a satisfactory way in and of ourselves. There's something greater out there, but what is it? I don't know. And so that leads to questions like this. What is the meaning of life? Why do I exist? Is there God? Who is this God? Who am I? God has put eternity in our hearts, yet we are still trying to find the answer to what that eternity is. What is the meaning of life? Everyone feels that. And now we have Jesus coming here with these men and women. And he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I provide a food that stretches into eternity, that eternally satisfies. Jesus comes 
And I think he answers the question or the paradox posed by Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3, chapter 11. What is the meaning of life? Where is this soul hunger, the spiritual hunger satisfied? Well, it's satisfied in Jesus. Because if you believe in Christ, you know the meaning of life. If you believe in Jesus, you know why you exist here in this world. You know who God is. You know who you are. If you believe in Christ, you have the answer to all these questions. The meaning of life is to glorify God through the salvation of His Son for our good. The meaning of life, you were created to be in deep, close relationship with God, not estranged from Him, not walking around in darkness trying to figure things out in your own power, your own strength, but to walk closely with the Lord. That's why you were created. And so people try to answer these questions in a million different ways with all the things of this world. For some, it's money. For some, it's power. For some, it's relationships. For some, it's family. For some, it's this thing and that thing. What Jesus is saying is, no, that true meaning is found in me. I am the bread of life. Come to me and find that to be true. And so at the end of the day, Jesus positions himself as the answer to life's deepest questions. The meaning of life is relationship with God through his Son. And for us then, we as we think about that, we need to consider, is that what we really want or have in Christ? Or are we coming for, to Jesus for different reasons? Are we using Jesus to get the bread of this world? Are we trying to work to get the approval of God? Or do we believe on Him in faith and faith alone? And then finally, is Jesus satisfying to you? Is a relationship with Him satisfying to you? Does He bring a sense of provision and sustenance and life? Are you satisfied with Christ? Because the good news is that the offer is totally free and it never goes stale. Jesus eternally satisfies. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just want to thank you for this morning that we can come to you and worship you, Lord, and work through your word and look at Jesus as the bread of life and consider consider what that means for us, Lord, um, for him to be the bread of life and in our own motives as we come to him, because we can kind of get our wires crossed, Lord, to use him for things we want out of this world. Is he enough for us? Do we appropriate, Lord, or, or receive the gifts that you give by faith and faith alone? Do we believe, Lord? Are we nourished by him? So much of my life, I just thought that Jesus was just an entryway into heaven, and that's pretty much it. But that's not it. Lord, He is the whole deal. And if we are not connected to Him, we're just going to waste away. And so, Lord, I, I ask that You would help us in our flesh, Lord, to just put off these things, to fix our eyes anew on Christ, to trust, to be nourished, to follow, to spend time with Him. All the other things in this world pass away, but to focus on Him and Him alone. Lord, we love You. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your Word that shows us these things. Search our hearts now as we respond in faith. 
May you be glorified, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things.